I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. For our sermon, we'll be considering verses 9 through 13. But just so that we could get a bit of context, I'll begin reading in verse 1. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see the things that Christ has done for us. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, the Apostle Paul is addressing the serious issue of sexual immorality within the church at Corinth. And this instance of sexual immorality is not just your run-of-the-mill type, but it's particularly egregious type of sexual immorality, so bad that even the pagans condemn this type of behavior as a man has taken his stepmother to be his wife. But as bad as that particular instance of sin was, Paul's main concern is the fact that the Christians at Corinth were tolerating it. So as we saw last week with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul directs the church to excommunicate this offender in the hopes that he might repent and be restored. Using the metaphor of leaven, he warned the church how pervasive even a little bit of sin can be in the life of the congregation. 
and reminding them of their new identity in Christ, he calls them to act in a manner that is consistent with the fact that they truly are unleavened, that they truly are God's holy people because of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But now he needs to go on and explain his reasonings and and clarify a potential misunderstanding that they may have had from a previous letter. Paul says there in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. Now here he's referring not to this letter, but to a letter he had written previously. And so what we typically call 1 Corinthians actually isn't 1 Corinthians. This isn't the first time that Paul has written to them, nor will it be the last time. We have good reason to believe that what we call 2 Corinthians is probably 4 Corinthians. Indeed, Paul constantly had to uh, continue to correspond with these churches, but in the providence of God, those letters have not been preserved uh, for for the New Testament canon. And yet, he needs to clarify this potential misunderstanding because he previously wrote for them not to associate with sexually immoral people. This word translated associate has to do literally with mingling together. It denotes keeping company with a person or having an interaction with them on a friendly basis. And Paul warned them about keeping close company with those who live in sexual immorality. This is the same word that's used in verse 1 to describe this particular, uh, uh, it's, it's a broad term to describe what was going on in the church. But now here's the correction in verse 10. When Paul says you shouldn't keep company with sexually immoral people, he wasn't referring to the sexually immoral people of the world, that is, non-believers. Apparently, there were some in Corinth who had misunderstood Paul's previous exhortation and thought that they needed to avoid any and all interaction with non-Christians since uh, since they lived immoral lives. But Paul very clearly explains that that is impossible. It is practically impossible to avoid any and all interaction, association with non-believers, since Paul says you'd have to go out of this world. This is before, uh, you know, this is before spaceships. But literally, you'd have to get on a spaceship and go out of this world in order to avoid any and all interaction with those who live immoral lives. And yet, as clear as Paul's statement is here, that has not stopped people in the church throughout the history of the church to try to do just that. I mean, think about the monks who go and live out in the desert or who, you know, close themselves off in, in, a, in their cloisters or Christians who live in communes or, or ways in which we as Christians seek to avoid any and all contact with those outside of the church and so that all of our interactions are done with, quote-unquote, Christians. This world flight or isolationist mentality is not found in Scripture. As a matter of fact, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was praying for his people, the night before he was to go to the cross, he prayed this to his heavenly Father regarding us as his people. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's often said that we are in the world, but not of the world. 
More properly, we might say we are sent into the world, but we are not of it. In the same way that Jesus Christ was sent to the world, so we as his people are sent by our Lord to, be, to maintain an effective Christian witness. And beloved Lord, you cannot have an effective Christian witness if you do not have meaningful relationships with non-believers. We ought to have association and, and, uh, as I said, meaningful relationships with with non-Christians, not just as potential converts, not just so that you could try to win them to Christ and and have a a checkmark on your list, but as fellow human beings. Love them as fellow image bearers of God so that you might have this relationship so that you might win them to Christ. So, for example, Paul, later on in the letter, envisions a scenario where unbelievers invite members of the church to come over to the house for dinner. And in chapter 10, verse 27, Paul says, if you're inclined to go, then you should go. And don't ask what's on the menu. Don't ask if the meat that's being uh, served at the table has been offered to idols for conscience sake. And so we can have these interactions. We can even eat together with non-believers. This is part of being salt and light in the present evil age. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand to give light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is what it means to have meaningful relationships with even those outside of the church. It's interesting when Paul gives uh, qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of those qualifications he gives is that he must be well thought of by outsiders. That even non-believers would look at this individual and they would have nothing evil to say. Because the man lives a life of integrity, dignity, and honesty. And as Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, that this is a part of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. We proclaim the gospel with our mouths, but we also need to adorn that doctrine with lives of honesty and integrity and even meaningful friendship with those outside the church. And so Paul Uh, clearing up that first misunderstanding that we ought not to isolate ourselves or avoid any and all contact with non-believers, he now goes on to give the the positive exhortation in verse 11 when he says, "I, I wrote to you in the past, but now, verse 11, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother." You see, ironically, the the Corinthians seemed to be avoiding interaction with the immoral world, but ironically, tragically, they were tolerating and even communing together with this gross offender in the church, the man who was living with his stepmom. And so he says, anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, anyone who has been baptized and, and incorporated into the household of faith, a person who claims to be a Christian, if this person who claims to be a Christian also is sexually immoral. 
Now, the ESV, as I read it in verse 11, uh, supplies the words, if he is guilty of. And I think that's an unfortunate translation. The, the word guilty is not there in the Greek. Literally, if he is sexually immoral. Because if it's just, if he's guilty of it, it we may understand that to, to mean that if it's just a one-time offense, a, a one-time offender who has repented and been restored, we, sh- we ought not to, uh, to excommunicate those type of people, but rather one who identifies in this way by continuing in unrepentant sin. And as Paul lists off these various types of sin, whether it be sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, we might wonder, well, what are the types of sins that can get you in trouble in church? What are the types of sins that may cause church discipline or ultimately may get you excommunicated? And we typically think, well, only the worst of the worst types of sins can end up with that. But at the end of the day, the only sin that will bring church discipline, the only sin that ultimately will result in excommunication is the sin of unrepentance. When confronted with the sin, no matter how small, if an individual refuses to acknowledge that sin, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what incurs church discipline and ultimately may incur the judgment of the church that this person is outside of the church. Why? Because he cherished sin in his heart, no matter how small. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and so ultimately it is sin and rebellion, not the, not the initial act. It's continuing the sin. And so church discipline, as Paul says, should not just stop with this one offender. As, he, as he's already rendered judgment for this one guy living with his stepmom, he now exhorts the Corinthian church to continue along this vein in church discipline. That for any and all who claim the name of brother who are living in open sin and rebellion against God, that they too ought to be excluded from the Christian communion. You see, unlike those who are in the world, who are in Adam who are enslaved by their sin and identified by their sin, as Paul talks about in in verse 10, the greedy of the world, the swindlers, the idolaters. You see, people who are in Adam and in the world, that's who they are. Outside of Christ, we are all identified by our sinful nature. But those who are in Christ are new creatures. Those who are in Christ are part of the new creation. We have a new identity, and so we ought not to identify ourselves by our sin. Although we struggle with sin, we are no longer defined by it. And so really, at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a greedy Christian. There is no such thing as an adulterous Christian. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. There are Christians who struggle with those sins, but they're not identified by them. That's not part of their title. They are in Christ, new creature. So that's why Paul in chapter 6, after listing off various uh, 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 vices, whether thieves or greedy or drunkards uh, or or swindlers or, or men who practice homosexuality, all of these things are identities that are forced upon unbelievers. But Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you. That's your old identity. You have a new identity in Christ. 
You are Christian. You are new creature. That's who you are. You still may struggle with those sins. We're not perfect. We're not perfectly sanctified, but we're not, uh, we are not defined by those sins. And so for the person who continues by their practice in unrepentance, defines themselves by that sin, whether it be sexual immorality or greed or idolatry. Paul says you can't do that. You cannot have both of those things. And so he lists the sin, the, the, the proximate sin of sexual immorality. This is a very broad term that includes any and all types of, of sexual promiscuity, whether it be adultery or fornication, not just the, the heinous type that's mentioned there in verse 1. He mentions the greedy and the swindlers. The, the, those, these are the, those who always want more, whose God is money and will not hesitate to defraud others in order to make a quick buck. Paul warns against this type of temptation in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. And for the person who says, I want to serve money, then Paul says, let them go their way. They are no longer serving the Lord. Listed together with greed and swindlers is idolatry. And idolatry, keep in mind, is not just bowing down to an idol, of which Paul will have much to say in chapter 10, but whenever we put anything in the place of God. And so that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 could say that covetousness is idolatry. Anytime we desire something over God's desires, we are ultimately putting an idol in the place of God. He speaks of those that revile, those that slander their neighbor, This is the type of verbal abuse that Paul received as an apostle that he mentioned back in chapter 4, when reviled we bless. This describes a person who cannot control their tongue, but is always speaking evil evil of other people, uh, uh, giving verbal abuse to others. And James says, these things ought not to be. With the same tongue we bless God and curse our neighbor. That cannot be. And then he mentions the drunkard. Again, this is not the sincere believer who who may struggle with alcoholism, who who may occasionally fall off the wagon, but then repents and believes and turns from their sins, but rather someone who lives for the bottle, which leads to all sorts of other vices in this life. See, people who repeatedly engage in this type of behavior who after several brotherly admonitions, if they refuse to repent and believe, should be disciplined by the church and excluded from the Christian communion. In keeping with the command of our Lord in Matthew chapter 18, that if he even refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now tomorrow is tax day. I don't know if I need to remind you of that. And we may have mixed feelings about the IRS. But when Jesus says, let this person be to you as a Gentile or tax collector, I think we're missing the social context. What does that look like? 
What does it look like for somebody to be excommunicated from the church, and how ought we to interact with them, as Paul says here, that we shouldn't associate with them? What does that mean? If we're walking down the street and we see this individual who's been excommunicated, should we go to the other, uh, should we cross the street and walk on the other side? If we're going to a restaurant and we see them there, should we get the food to go and and, and not eat? Because Paul says you shouldn't even eat with them. What does this mean? Well, first of all, let's explain and understand what it means when Paul says that you shouldn't even eat with this person. Some commentators suggest that Paul is referring to eating together uh, at the Lord's table with this person and and saying that this person ought to be excluded from from, uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. Well, I think that's true, but that should go without saying. The Apostle Paul isn't saying even exclude him from the Lord's Supper, but, but... That's already implied when he's been kicked out of the church, when his privileges of membership have been done away with. Rather, I think Paul's referring to social gatherings, and what he's describing here is the type of table fellowship that in the ancient world was a bonding experience. It's always been the case throughout human civilization. Eating together with people is a bonding experience. That's why we invite people over to our house so that we might not just share a meal with them, but that we might bond and fellowship with one another. And so so Paul is saying that that for these people who have been excluded from the Christian communion, that we ought not to invite them over for dinner, for example. The idea is that we ought not to carry on like nothing is wrong. We are sending a message to this individual as well as to the world, that such behavior is not fitting among saints and will not be tolerated. You'll notice here that the Apostle Paul is giving a total double standard. For those who are in the world, who are identified by their sin, Paul says, go for it. Have dinner with them, interact with them. Of course, you don't want to engage in their sinful behavior, but in order to be salt and light with those people, It's perfectly fine to have dinner with unbelievers. And yet for somebody who claims to be a Christian, who nevertheless is identifying themselves by their sinful behavior, we ought to send a message by not indiscriminately mingling together with them as if everything is okay. So that's why Paul says not even to eat with this person. It's a very serious thing to exclude them from normal uh, fellowship as believers did. But it's important to understand that this is not shunning. Shunning is a, is a, a behavior where they act, uh, we act as if the, uh, the individual in question does not exist. Not speaking to the person, or perhaps being rude or turning up our noses. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 is a, is a helpful parallel passage to this when Paul says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. It's the same Greek word here, translated do not associate. He says, have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. But then he goes on to say, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so it's not, it doesn't mean cut off any and all interaction with the individual. There should be continued interaction with the person, but in the capacity of warning, 
of, of, of solemnly warning this individual that their lifestyle is out of keeping with their Christian profession. So it's not shunning, it's not turning up our noses, it's not uh, avoiding any and all interaction with the individual, but sending a clear message that things are not okay as they stand and urging that person to continue to repent and turn and be reconciled with the church. I think this is important to keep in mind uh, for situations in life where contact with individuals who are under church discipline or who have been disciplined by the church is unavoidable. You may envision a scenario in in the ancient church where uh, a master may be disciplined or excommunicated from the church, but the slave continues within the congregation. A slave has no choice. They have to continue to interact. They have to continue to submit and obey their master regardless of their standing. Or perhaps he's a co-worker. Or perhaps he or she is a family member. What do you do in those situations? Do you not invite him over for Thanksgiving? Well, see, again, I think it's important to keep in mind that church discipline is not an act of individuals or even of families, but it is an act of the whole church. And when a person is disciplined and even ultimately excommunicated from the church, they are excluded from the Christian communion. But they are not excluded from the other social settings we find ourselves in life. You see, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are are not of this world, but we are most certainly in this world. And as citizens in this world, we also have other social settings that define us. Our ultimate identity is new creatures in Christ. But as we'll see in the rest of the book of Corinthians, becoming a Christian doesn't change your marital status. It doesn't change your social setting. Uh, If you're a slave, it doesn't automatically make you free. It doesn't change who you're married to. It doesn't change who your parents are. It doesn't change who you're related to. Now, as Christians, as Paul will go on to say, wherever you find yourself in your social setting... Be content with that and seek to glorify God in your own unique way. That's that's the important thing to understand is that Christianity, uh, our new identity in Christ, radically reorientates all of those social settings, but it doesn't do away with them. And so for an individual who may be under church discipline, if he's a family member, he's still your family member. And you ought to love him accordingly. So it doesn't change that. It's not, uh, he's excluded from the church, but not your family. Then Paul goes on to describe why this is so important and why it's so important for the church at this point to be doing. In verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? This is a pretty striking language for Paul to say. What have I to do with judging outsiders? And we might say, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're an apostle. You have the authority of Jesus Christ. Of course you can go judge outsiders. You see, what what Paul is not saying is that we should be morally indifferent to the world around us, that we should just ignore what's going on in in society around us. Clearly, that's not what Paul did. You read Romans chapter 1. He had a pretty clear uh, assessment of the sinfulness of the world around him. Nor is the Apostle Paul denying what he will say in chapter 6, verse 2, that we will judge the world. That is, united together, 
with the risen and glorified Christ, we standing together with him, openly acknowledged and acquitted, will then in turn judge men and angels. We'll find out about that in a few weeks. He's not denying that. But what he's saying is that time in which we will judge the world together with the risen Christ, that's not right now. Now is not the time to judge the world. It's interesting that Paul says that. And yet, when you look at the church, it seems as if the church expends a remarkable amount of time judging the world around us. How many times do you hear sermons or, or, or read articles or different things where uh, uh, members of the church or ministers of the church are judging the world around them? And yet, the church is almost completely and totally negligent on disciplining those within its midst. We got things backwards. The world will be judged. God will judge them. But as Peter says, now is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Right now, judgment is happening in the church, and it's happening through church discipline. You see, as the first fruits of God's new creation, The Lord is purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are to be zealous for good works. Paul tells us that ultimately the world is out of our jurisdiction. That's past our pay grade. We ought not to be judging the world, but rather we ought to be judging ourselves, those inside of the church. God uses the process of church discipline to keep his people pure. Paul says, leave judging of the world to God. And so finishing his exhortation, he gives a a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. This is a repeated phrase that we encounter several times in the book of Deuteronomy as as, uh, uh, Moses is repeating the law to that second generation of Israelites who are about to enter into the land and talking about the various types of sins that are to be judged under the Mosaic law and and ultimately the sins that result in the person being cut off from from the people of God. Moses has this refrain, purge the evil, evil person from among you. In our modern sensibilities, we read those Old Testament laws and, and, and the seemingly draconian measures taken against them. And sometimes we cringe. We think, wow, I'm so glad I don't, I don't live under the Old Testament. And yet when Paul takes that verse and applies it directly to the New Testament context, we need to keep in mind that although the, the punishments are different, none of us take up stones in the process of church discipline. Our authority uh, as the church, we do not bear the sword. Our authority is is completely moral and spiritual authority. It's an official declaration. And yet it is just as, if not more, serious in the New Testament context. If somebody is excluded from the kingdom of God. Paul reminds us that God's holy standard for his people has never changed. Because he never changes. As new covenant believers, we have new and better access to the throne of grace, but the God we serve is still a consuming fire. And he will not tolerate those who live in open sin and rebellion against him. 
And so he uses this process of church discipline. As we consider this somber and yet necessary process in the life of the church, it's important for us to be reminded that none of us are holy in and of ourselves. None of us in and of ourselves are fit to stand before a holy God, but God has made us that way through the blood of his son. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us and made us truly holy so that Paul can say, you are unleavened. You are God's holy temple. Now act like it. May we never forget our identity in Christ. May we never forget who we are. And may God give us grace and hearts filled of gratitude in order to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you indeed came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. We thank you that you took and bore the punishment that we all deserved because of our own sin. And you have given us a new life, a new identity in you. You warn us that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and it is your goal to purify your people through the power of the Spirit, even using this process of church discipline. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to purify uh, not only our lives individually, but continue to purify your church corporately as a body. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen.